Hey everybody, welcome to the Gilded Films Podcast, where we set out to uncover the past, present, and future of the Academy Awards. You're listening to the 10th installment of our series, Which Picture Was Best, in which we will explore the Best Picture nominees from the 17th Academy Awards, where Hollywood celebrated the films of 1944, and determined if the voters got it right. I'm your host, Christian, joined today by my co-host, Brett. Hello. And our guest, KB. Hello, hello. And here, as always, is Brett to take it away. Yes, thanks everybody for tuning in. Not just our 10th episode, but we are going to consider this our season finale of Which Picture Was Best. So we, we've done it. We've made it one season. Today, as Christian said, talking about the year 1944. And so we'll jump right in. Um, we're going to talk about the five nominated films We'll give a few honorable mentions to some other movies we watched and kind of hold in a high regard. And then, as always, we'll share our personal nominees and winners. So, the year, 1944. It was the 17th Academy Awards. Best Picture was giving to Going My Way, which was directed by Leo McCary, starring Bing Crosby, both of whom also won Oscars for Best Director and Best Actor. Best Actress went to Igrin Bergman for a film called Gaslight, which we will also discuss. Supporting Actress went to Ethel Barrymore for None But the Lonely Hearts. And Best Supporting Actor, Going My Way, picked up another award for Barry Fitzgerald, which is a very interesting win. I don't want to spoil why yet, but that is definitely something we'll cover, is Barry Fitzgerald and his weird place in Oscar history. And so, Christian, I see you posted some interesting facts about this year. I did. So, it's a little fun fact. This is the first year that the Oscars standardized the Best Picture pool of five nominees, which they would keep until 2009. Personally, I enjoy the five nominees, but that's a, that's a, another podcast. Uh, this is the first year every Best Picture nominee had at least one nominated performance. And surprising. Surprising. Um, this is the first year the entire ceremony was broadcast by ABC. And it's just 1944. I'm pretty sure that's ABC isn't like the radio version of ABC. Because TV wasn't a modern staple. And then just a little bit of historical news. We are still in World War II, um, both in Europe and in the Pacific. Operation Overlord occurs on June 6, 1944, commonly known as D-Day. And Ooh. yes, very big, very big important historical event there and uh roosevelt wins his fourth term eleanor i'm president for the fourth time <laughs> hey franklin you look like you're on death's door <laughs> poor eleanor yes his fourth term because he is a war president and we didn't have rules and regulations back then for that so there you go. yeah which he didn't make it very long into his fourth term but Still elected four times. Pretty obviously never going to happen again. Hopefully never going to happen again. Um, I must say that, like, <laughs> I must say looking up all the fun facts, most of America during this time was focused on the war because obviously, and when we talk about a lot of these movies and some of the honorable mentions, a lot are more of sort of a wartime effort on Hollywood's part. And you'll notice that, especially with uh, Going My Way winning and all mm -hmm. so you'll see 
Yeah. Yeah, I feel like even when they're not a war film or a film where World War II is significantly featured, you can kind of see the impact that being in World War II had on the films um, in terms of genre and how they were presented. Anyway, let's just jump right into these films. Um, The first nominee from this year, arguably probably the most famous, um, the most maybe even renowned, I would say, since this time has passed is a little film noir called Double Indemnity. This was directed by Billy Wilder, very famous director, and was co-written by Wilder and Raymond Chandler, who was responsible for a lot of the hard-boiled detective film noir novels and stories that were really popular during this time. To provide a little background of the plot, um, it follows Walter Neff, who is a very successful insurance salesman, and... It starts with this kind of, you know, he, we see he's wounded, like looks like a gunshot wound, and he goes into this big, what eventually becomes a confession um, about this story that is told all in flashback. We see him, he meets, um, he goes to the house of Phyllis Dietrichson, who is played in an iconic role by Barbara Stanwyck. And it's kind of a typical visit. He's going to remind her husband to renew his uh, automobile insurance policy. But during this time, they get to talking and he kind of senses that she may be leaning towards killing off her husband to trigger this double indemnity clause, which would double the payout for his death on accident insurance. And so at first, he's like, no way, not getting involved in that, not my thing. But then he develops feelings for her pretty early on. He discovers that her marriage is not happy um in any sense of the word world word and so he agrees to take it on and so they set out together to try to complete this murder without being caught especially by neff's boss who is played by edward g robinson in a really spectacular role as well and so kind of a plot outline um christian i'm going to go to you what were your thoughts on double indemnity how many times have you seen it I think, I think like guesstimate, like that many, that many. <laughs> yeah, but okay. so when I watched so this this time, it's been a while, and I think it was like 2014, 2013 since I last saw it. But again, it's a Billy Wilder film. I love my Wilder, as we know from 1950s podcast with Sunset Boulevard. This once again proves how much I love him. The pacing of it, the writing of it, which I know in the fun facts that I read, him and Raymond Chandler did not get along. However, James and Kane, the actual mm-hmm. writer of the novel Double Indemnity, felt that their writing really helped the book itself and a lot of key issues in the book. I'm not sure what. I have never read it. Um, Barbara Stanwyck, like you said, is iconic. Her hair is iconic. That really 1940s hairstyle. <laughs> I love Fred McMurray in this. I don't know if I've seen a performance as great as Fred McMurray in, in terms of him. I've seen him in like the shaggy dog and the apartment where he's more of like a supporting character, but he is my favorite in this film. And this is really his film. And then Barbara Stanwyck's sorry, Barbara Stanwyck. And then also this is Billy Wilder's third direct, like directing job. And like you're coming off a movie called the major and the minor, which is a comedy, some movie called five graves of Cairo. And then you're like, okay, let's make this really hard edge noir film that's gonna 
probably piss people off because, ooh, the violence of the 40s. We don't want to talk about violence. And then it's like, ah, oh, let's just give it some time. We'll sit on it. And it's now regarded as like a classic film. Honestly. So good. That's my spiel. Cool. KB? I must say, too, as a noir film, it's like top notch. Yeah. The actual quote unquote murder part, good stuff. Nice. Yeah, this is the prototype for film noir. I mean, you had the Maltese Falcon the year before, but this is it. This is the definition of the femme fatale. The silhouette stuff that we get from the very first scene is like German expressionism in its finest. And just everything throughout that movie was just revolutionary. Um, Just a little bit more about how it got made, like Christian said, in the 40s, no one was doing this stuff. Um, No one was having this type of deception on the screen. Long gone were the, you know, pre-code 20s movies, and this was kind of like a shout back to it. And to go from there to um, having actors just straight out say, I'm not going to be in this movie because it's going to ruin my career. And Fred McMurray, like Christian said, taking the chance and turning in the performance of a lifetime. I mean, without this, there's no detour the next year with the big budget. And then there's no Blade Runner. There's no sense of noir, even neo-noir. No Who Framed Roger Rabbit, if you want to go there. But um, there's no sense of noir, as far as we know, in American film, if Double Indemnity is not successful. Maybe not then, but now, I mean, we we see them on all the AFI uh, lists and everything. So this was kind of like the staple for what we would come to know as noir. And I just absolutely love it. And I've seen it more than four or five times. Yeah. I mean, even if you think about when we talked about the 1950 episode, um, I don't know how many noir films we watched from that year. And it all it all comes back to double indemnity. I mean, this was not just like it's a staple. It's influential. But it also just it changed the course of movies for the next decade. I mean, I mean, the number of film noirs that were being made after this were endless. And um, so you can see, I mean, everything from, you know, KB mentioned the femme fatale, the Venetian blinds. Um, you know, they actually like say them by name. And it's like a real almost like character with the lighting. And you hear callbacks to it. I mean, I think of like Chinatown when like in the beginning Jack Nichols is like, hey, don't mess with the Venetian blinds. Like this is, it's calling back to double indemnity. Yeah. And yeah, I really love it. The The narrative is so incredibly strong. Um, I feel like it's one that people might be tempted to like pick apart and say like, this shouldn't work, this shouldn't work, but it all works because there is that sense of fatalism through it. Um, I think at the- any time, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say what works, works really well. And the best two or three scenes in this movie, I mentioned earlier, one is the actual murder itself. Uh, mm-hmm. Because McMurray and Stanwyck are really smart in how they want to go about this. It almost, you know, watch the movie. It, it works wonderfully. My favorite part, however, is the grocery store scenes. Yes. And those, like, to get them... So yeah. that they're seen by witnesses that maybe they don't know each other. So they at least have, you know, some alibis or whatever. And then just like the framing of it with Stanwyck in her sunglasses, like me going to a grocery store because I don't want people to see me. <laughs> like, good job there, Billy. Yeah. 
and you think about Edward G. Robinson, he was the star in all these movies, and for him to come in as a supporting role, and in a way, you know, he steals the scenes that he's in just because of the caliber of actor that he is, and to see him come in and say, you know what, I'll I'll take a risk, one, on this role, because, it, you know, it was like a movie no one wanted to touch. Not only that, I will take the supporting role, and I'm just going to act my face off every time I'm on screen. And it's just like a trifecta of great acting between McMurray, Stanwyck, and Robinson. It really is. And I think, you know, Stanwyck probably gets the most acclaim however many years later because she really just constructed that femme fatale role. Christian, like you said, McMurray is really great in his own right. And I think Edward G. Robinson is my personal favorite of the three. Um, it's partially because he's the one. It's such a different role for him, too. It is. Yeah. You know, the gangster role that he's had in past films, none of that was even present. It wasn't even like, you know, he was like typecast mm-hmm. to say he's going to go into that. No, it was like a totally different role. And he knocked it out of the park. Yeah. I mean, he's that guy, like, he's the one we can kind of like sympathize with in the movie he's the good guy you know but at the same time he's kind of scary like i think about the scene where he is with fred mcmurray in his apartment and barbara stanwick is coming up to see him and she like hides behind the doorway like i'm like on the edge of my seat watching that because on one hand i'm like edward go get him like you got her just open the damn door but the other hand i'm like don't open the damn door i want this movie to go on it can't end here and so which I know it doesn't because it's like at the midway yeah. point, but it is, it builds up that tension really well. This the audience can see our smiles right now as you're describing that scene. That's how much I think we all love this movie is that we have these permagrins on our face just to express uh, how much we love it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the cinematography, the score, the sound. Christian, you mentioned some scenes that you love. I really love the ending of this movie between Edward G. Robinson and Walter Neff. I'm not going to spoil what they talk about or what they say, but it's a really kind of poignant, but also kind of like touching ending between the two of them. Um, they are, they're coworkers. They, they have a certain love for each other, but they are at ends in this movie. Um, and the index in between those two, like I couldn't have think of a better ending for this movie. Um, some quick facts on the movie. As Christian mentioned, this was based on James M. Cain's novella. It did get seven nominations. Obviously, Best Picture. Wilder did get a director nomination. Barbara Stanwyck got nominated for Actress. Neither McMurray or Robinson nominated for this role. In fact, the fact that Edward G. Robinson was never nominated for an Oscar is unre- so, unbelievable. So, like, today when I was reading Fun Facts, just to see if there was anything else to include, somewhere on IMDb, they said there was possibility that Nobody could decide if Robinson should have been a lead actor or supporting actor. And I'm like, oh y'all like really this stupid? <laughs> I think so. Wow. Obviously was nominated for the screenplay because it's amazing. The cinematography score and sound. Um, KB, you mentioned you see these types of movies on all these lists. This did make the AFI top 100. Their redo in 2007, it was number 29. And Phyllis Dietrichson was number eight villain of all time on their list, which I don't know. I mean, it's, 
I'm sure I could come up with eight that I see as more villainous, and but I, I also can't argue with that. She's, She's pretty cunning. iconic. Yeah, she, very she, cunning. Her her performance created a character. He uses that yes. femme fatale very well to lure McMurray into all of this when he doesn't need to. Because her yeah. first introduction scene is her in a bath towel. Right, right. She's like, I don't know, like, and maybe I'm alone on this, but it's like, I know she's the villain. I know that she's very cunning and she's twisting the knife on all these things, but I also can't dislike her. Like, she's just, it's fun to watch her do it all. And so, I don't know, maybe that's just me. I think the term is female wiles. Oh, okay. I got you. Um, number 84 on AFI's 100 Passions, Love Stories. Number 24 on their 100 Thrills. And, you know, as we mentioned, Raymond Chandler writing this selected because his style was so similar to James M. Cain. And really, you know, he was responsible for so many of the stories like this. But really great noir, super, super influential. Um, I think very dark and fitting for the time that it was released, even if maybe not everybody wanted to go see that at the movie. Um but yeah, definitely the most bold, I would argue, of the five nominees. Yeah. Any last thoughts on Double Indemnity before we move on? That was it for me. Cool. Christian, would you like to take away our next nominee? Would I like to take it away? Is this a knife that you see in my hand? Hey, <laughs> <laughs> Our next film is Gaslight, directed by George Cukor. And this is the story of Paula Alquist, later uh, last name Anton, played by Ingrid Bergman. Her aunt has been murdered in the opening scene when she's a young girl. She is then whisked off to Italy, where she becomes an opera star, much like her aunt was. Years later, she meets Gregory Anton, played by Charles Boyer. And after just a few weeks of knowing one another and falling in love, they marry. He takes her from Italy to his home in London, where he really secludes her in his house. And specifically, the house in question is that of her aunt's house, the aunt who was murdered. Um, obviously, this is kind of strange to Paula, and it gets even stranger when she starts to see that the gaslight roll credits uh, start to flicker <laughs> off and on. And when she mentions this, nobody really believes her. Things start disappearing and her husband accuses her of stealing things, misplacing things, and she has no recollection of this. This is called gaslighting. This is like the actual symptom, hence the title of the movie. But it's pretty much a mystery where why is this all happening to her? Why has she been secluded and locked away in her aunt's house by her husband? She has no friends. And the maid is kind of an a-hole to her. The maid played by somebody named Angela Lansbury in her very first role. And then a Scotland Yard detective, Joseph Cotton, who we'll talk about in a later film. Joseph Cotton had a really good year, I must say. Yeah. Uh, gets involved in Paula's quote-unquote case and her situation on why her husband married her in the first place. Very Hitchcockian, dun-dun-dun, but directed by George Cukor. So, like, female oriented dun 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 and honestly yeah. this is one of my favorites uh of the year 
I have seen it before. The first time I didn't understand it. Second time I watched it for Ingrid Bergman's performance since she did win Best Actress. And in my little ranking of all the Best Actress winners because I've done so, she is number 37. Which wow. isn't, I mean, which isn't bad. I it's really, top. It's, it's top 50. Yeah. yeah. Um, she's really good in this. Charles Boyer, I think, is brilliant in this. This is yes. like Fred McMurray style from his performance. And Charles Boyer is really, I think, an underappreciated actor. I've only seen him in a few movies. Not a whole lot of people know him because he's not mentioned in like that lexicon of like Catherine Hepburn, Marlon Brando, Ingrid Humphrey, and whatnot. Um, but he gives a really chilling, chilling ass performance in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So great i think for me it's a great film it's a great mystery sort of noir i guess with that mystery element but y'all might think differently than me there you go yeah i mean i I think there is an element of noir to it um because it's it's like there's always something lurking there's something dark here we're kind of in on what it is after a while but our main character certainly is not and yeah, I mean, I really think it is. It is built on these two lead performances from Bergman and Boyer. I don't think it would be as good or as well remembered if their performances weren't so good. Um, but yeah, I I knew about the film. This is my first time seeing it. Obviously, I'm familiar with the term gaslighting um, and what that entails. I wasn't aware of just how much he gaslighted her in this movie. I mean, it's not just like a few events. He is constantly on her going from minor things like she's misplaced stuff to more and more severe. Um, Like the gaslights themselves accusing her of being a kleptomaniac. Um, Eventually to where he suggests that she is losing her mind. Yeah. And I I always want to say really quick for the viewers out there who don't know what gaslighting is uh, by definition, Mm. it's a manipulation by somebody by psychological means into questioning their own sanity. Just putting that out there. Which Boyer is a master of in this movie. And I was in a class one time, uh, an American criticism class for film. KB, you were in this one, I think. And one of the things we talked about is a quote unquote representative anecdote, which is like one thing. It could be a scene, a character, whatever in a movie that just represents the entire thing. And the gaslights themselves symbolically, you know, turning on and off. And she doesn't know why it's such a great representation of what is happening in this movie um, and what he's doing to her. And I was just, I was very thankful that they decided to go with the title gaslight because the original title was uh, the murder in Thornton square. Boring. So boring. Like, feels sounds so typical for a title and i was just like thank goodness they called this movie gaslight which seems like such a simple thing now but at the time maybe not and so kb what were your thoughts well there's two movies that immediately i think of uh la dolce vita you get the word paparazzi from a character there named paparazzo and this one, gaslighting, um, it's very intriguing when you have 
movies that inspire lexicon in our everyday. But um, what you saw as noir, I saw it more as like just what I just said, intrigue and more of a thriller. And as far as comparing it to Hitchcock films, I think of not only The Lodger, mm-hmm. which is one of his early ones, but also Notorious, which, you know, is uh, very similar in that way Another as well. Another Birdman. Yeah, especially when you think about the actress in it, which was also Ingrid Bergman. So there's so many great things to this, and you guys already mentioned it, but um, between this and the cinematography as well, it was just outstanding. Um, some of the camera movements, if you, when, we, when we're doing these podcasts, I just have to keep thinking about, think about the period, think about the time. And for the time, the way that camera was moving around and when it was locked down and his choice to use wide shots and close shots and how that added to just like the intensity of some of the scenes, especially between Boyer and uh, Bergman, it just intensified it so much. And I mean, this is another great one, another one that you could watch over and over. Um, it's, it's just a shame that it doesn't have as much like wide release appeal as like some other movies of the early 40s, because I think this one ranks right up there with them. Yeah, cinematography is really great. Production design um, is really great because the setting plays such a huge role in this movie. And hence it won production design. There's a lot in that. There's a lot in the house. Yes. And most of the action yeah. is in the house. Yeah. Yeah, that was what I noticed is like a lot of this movie is like within this house, this this short space, but it never really feels terribly confined to me. Um, and it was based on a play, so it kind of makes sense. But I never felt like entrapped in it. I mean, to a degree, like I sympathize with Bergman yeah, because yeah. she does, but I never feel like I'm like locked in there or whatever it might be. But that just goes back to the camera movement because sometimes when you were getting those close-ups on Bergman's face, it added so much of like this feeling of paranoia. And you started, even as a first-time watcher, you might think, well, is she a little crazy? You know, you start to wonder it until you find out a little bit more as a watcher. But, I mean, there's so many different movies that I could think of that... I want to say they came afterwards and they kind of took the style. So I don't know. It's just a, a great movie. I wish more people knew yeah, about it. Without, I mean, without spoiling it, because again, I want people to actually watch these movies. The ending, Ingrid Bergman literally gets her like Oscar clip in the ending. Yeah, she really does. Last mm-hmm. like, the that's last that's where she won it. I'm always like, go girl. Like, yeah. Yeah. Which is important because, Christian, you put a note here that her win was a mild surprise because a lot of people thought Stanwyck was going to win. And, I, you know, that scene that she leaves us with is probably what just convinced voters, like, wow, I want to vote for that, what she just did. And I must say, in Academy eyes, because Casablanca was 43, technically this is 44, Mm -hmm. she gets two back-to-back great performances. Yes. I know she has whom the bell tolls in there somewhere. And Casablanca. I do think the the win definitely does like after this she goes on to do Spellbound, uh, Notorious, Joan of Arc, 
And so I see how this film was kind of a just a career liftoff for her. Even with the experiences she had. But I don't know. Ingrid Bergman, she's kind of almost like Greta Garbo in a way. And that like Greta Garbo, it was like it was her face. You know, we were watching to see how they closed in on her face and the, the, the expression she gave. When I think of Casablanca and Gaslight, that's something else that comes up is that, you know, Casablanca, when we're introduced to Ilsa Lund, we get this really soft close up on her image. It's used a lot here in Gaslight for obvious reasons. And so she's she's kind of iconic in that way. Um, Shout out to our friend Anthony, who at one point when I first met him had a huge thing for Ingrid Bergman. (laughs) If you're listening, Anthony, which you will now because I'm going to tell you. (laughs) yeah christian do you want to go over the rest of our fast facts i know we covered a few yeah uh the term gaslighting may have originated from the play uh this is based on remake of the 44 british film or 40 1940 not 1944 40 british uh, originally given the title the murder in thornton square actually that version was on turner classic movies and i accidentally recorded it Shout out to Zay, because I almost had a Zay moment where I walked that one instead of this one, uh, which wouldn't have been a problem, because the 40 version is also on the DVD version of this one. There's a lot to take in that sentence, but whatever. MGM attempted to destroy all copies of that 1940s version because they could, but obviously they did not get away with it. Uh, Bergman's win was a surprise, and uh, like I said, Angela Lansbury's first film. Yeah. The woman is still working for today. Yeah. I want to say Joseph Cotton, who we mentioned earlier, um, pretty good in this film. I think even more substantial in the film that we have coming up soon. But man, that is another guy who never received an Oscar nomination. Um, you think of all he's been in over the years, whether it's supporting roles or lead in something like The Third Man, um, never got in, which is really interesting. Anything else on Gaslight before we move on? Uh, I didn't read the wins, but it, it did win actress. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ingrid won actress and production design and then nominated for picture. Boyer for actor. Angela Lansbury for supporting actress. Ain't that nice. Your first film, your first nomination. Screen, screenplay <laughs> and cinematography. Very nice. Okay. Christian, you also res- you reviewed the next film on our website. And so would you like to take this one away? Yes, a very surprise watch. So this is Since You Went Away, David O. Selznick's production. He wanted it to, to be as grand as Gone with the Wind, his 1939 epic. This was his like war effort picture, and it takes place in small town America. I don't really think it tells you where. But it involves Anne Hilton, who's Claudette Colbert, her daughters Jane, Jennifer Jones, and Bridget uh, Shirley Temple, who actually came out of retirement to make this movie. They're at home. Their hus- her husband has gone to war. To make a little bit more money, they let in boarders because during the time of war, it was very common for people to let in other people, especially soldiers or whatnot, to their home. They let in Colonel Smollett. Smollett uh, Monty Woolley, a great character actor. He's actually not a current sergeant or anything. He's retired. He's old. He's grumpy. 
and it is yeah, the AF. Um, but it's basically about their lives, just waiting for their loved ones to get home from war. There's a character of Bill Smollett who is, I'll probably get it wrong, but it's a son or a nephew. It's a grandson. It's the grandson of Colonel Smollett. He's sort of seen not as well in the eyes because he's dropped out of West Point. He falls for Jennifer Jones's character. Then there's another character of Tony Willett, Joseph Cotton, again. And he's just a family friend. He's more in the first half of this movie. This movie is three hours long. I will say that. Yeah. Um, Hattie McDaniel, who we saw in Gone with the Wind, is also in this as their maid. Uh, Agnes Moorhead, who I don't know if we've spoken about, like, ever. But she's also in this as a very nosy, snobbish neighbor. And, yeah, since she went away. It's mostly about the family point of view during the war. During this time, we get a lot of movies about the war in terms of fighting and battles. This is strictly, let's see what the normal, everyday American is doing while we're waiting for this thing to end. And that is the main purpose of this movie. It's very melodramatic. Once again, it's David O. Selznick's war effort in terms of a film. And it's, surprisingly, for a three-hour movie, very good. <laughs> yeah. KB, had you seen this one before? I had not, and it was a good thing I didn't look at the running time before it started because I probably would have found some way not to uh, get into it, but I, I have a hot take. I am not a fan of Gone with the Wind. I would rather rewatch this than rewatch Gone with the Wind. Um, everything from the performances to just those moments of just pure somber and just um, making you feel for these people. It, it's quite interesting that this year um, there were a lot of films that reflected the times, if not directly in the characters, but just in the reception of these films. So I, I think this is one that, like I said, it's it's rewatchable despite its time. And it, it just leaves you with a, a feeling of what it was like in that period. Everything from just having those loved ones away to the young girl's choices on what to do with life as she graduates from high school. Those were things that families were dealing with in the time and it was so reflective of it and so personal without just i don't know making any type of like too much of it it was just the right amount of emotion and like uh, christian said melodrama in order to sustain you for three hours i was pleasantly surprised at this one i really was too and i i did look at the runtime before i watched it and i was like oh my god because me, like I, Christian knows this. I'm not huge on long movies unless they're made by like a well-esteemed like director, like Martin Scorsese, Three and a Half Hour Irishman. It's Martin Scorsese. Like you know, that's different. Right. John Cromwell. I don't know if I should know this guy. I apologize. I didn't know who he was before I started watching. Um, so I was a little, a little nervous. I really, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I was really shocked by it. It ended up being one of my favorites that we watched from this year. Partially because it, it kind of does have it all. If you're looking at this time, we have stories of 
um, people whose you know their loved ones are not coming back from war. We figure that out. We have those who they are coming back, um, and really Claudette Colbert just really gives it all here. Um, I, I think she's one of the greatest. Um, just everything I've seen her in, I just love watching her, and this is no different. What is what a best actress race this year? I think it's pretty underrated. I mean, best actress is usually competitive, but you have this with her kind of enduring, really emotional performance. You've got Ingrid Bergman in Gaslight. You've got Barbara Stanwyck. I mean, it was that would have been a tough decision for me if I was an Oscar voter during that time. Yeah. The, the read thing you probably don't know, uh, John Cromwell, he was blacklisted. Ah, there you go. Which I kind of wondered, like, getting into this film, like, how much of this is going to be, uh, like, World War II propaganda and whatnot. And somewhat there, but like you said, it's very timely, so you kind of expect it. There's mention of, like, victory gardens and all the stuff they're going to do to support the war effort. But really, at the bottom of it all is this really... It's a group of people who are looking for connections with one another because it's an extremely difficult time. Monty Wooley, great in this movie as well. He comes in, he's a stern, not totally likable guy. And by the end, he's one of the, the most lovable characters in this whole thing. Jennifer Jones really goes through the ringer in this movie. I mean, her character goes through some shit. Um, your personal life goes through some shit during the yeah. T- Touch on that. I want to. I want to. It leads us into. You must remember this. <laughs> so she's not going to listen, but I want to give a shout out to Karina Longworth, the host of You Must Remember This podcast, for like aptly making me listen to this specific episode during the watch of this movie. So Jennifer Jones was married to Robert Walker at the time. Well, those two are in this movie together as the love interest. However, their marriage is crumbling during the making of this. Crumbling because Jennifer was also seeing on the side David O. Selznick, her (laughs) producer. And, like, you cannot tell from any of their scenes that they're having, like, you know, offstage. They probably hate one another because they're so in love in this. But I mean, in the end, Jennifer runs off with Selznick and they become like a power duo and he puts her in a lot of movies under his production company. But it's just like juicy, juicy, juicy. And then, of course, (laughs) she gets a supporting actress nomination out of this. Yeah. And this is coming off like the year before where she wins Best Actress for the Song of Bernadette. So like Joseph Cotton or like Ingrid Bergman, she had a couple good years on her. Yeah. Yeah, she was like 25 when she made this. I don't know. I don't remember how old Selznick was, but interesting dynamic there. And he was already married to the daughter of Louis B. Mayer. Ouch. Uh, Shirley Temple is also in this movie. Not the Shirley Temple we're used to. Um, You know, she's a teenager by this point, but I really enjoyed her as well. And, you know, I... And the dog. uh, Yes, of she course. shares a lot of her scenes with Monty Woolley and the dog, whose name I think was Soda. Yeah, I think. But no, she's good. Like I said, she came out of sort of a semi-retirement to make this. She's It's a brief role, really, because she's right. younger than Jones, but like... She, ain't no, she got no keep... animal crackers in her soup. <laughs> we keep talking about this film 
being melodramatic. Um, and I agree with that. It definitely is. But I think sometimes there's a negative connotation that's automatically placed on melodrama. And here, you know, there are some times I'm like, okay, let's cool off a little bit. But here, I don't think it's terribly negative that it gets melodramatic at times. Um, no, it, it's it's not magnificent obsession. It's not like over the top melodrama, but um, it, it definitely has those moments, especially over three hours. Like I said, there are just these moments of just somber reaction because you know you're you're in it with them after. I wouldn't even say the first hour after the first 45 minutes or so you're you're in it with the family and wherever the war and all the journeys take them you're you're in with them yeah um last couple things for me i really love the score of this movie and cinematography is pretty surprising for me specifically a shot in the train station where it's like looking down on jennifer jones and you see her shadow and she's very sad and that is just an amazing shot um something that we've seen before but really looked really good so david oselznik knows how to make a big grand production he really does that for sure christian do you want to go over the wins noms and fun facts yes uh so this one only one oscar and it was for the score which brett highlighted mm-hmm. eight additional noms for picture Claudette got actress, supporting actor for Monty Woolley. Jennifer Jones gets a supporting actress nom, cinematography, art direction, film editing, and whatever special effects were considered in that day. Yeah, I don't know where that's coming from. All that that CGI. (laughs) Um, uh, Once again, Selznick wanted to show his support for the war effort, so he made this film. Jennifer Jones... At one hour, 15 minutes, and 38 seconds of screen time, holds the record for the longest supporting actress nominee. Though I will say she is still supporting in my book. Oh, ooh. I don't know. That's just me. I think it's it's a three-hour movie, so that's still only one-third of this movie, basically. It is kind of interesting. Like I said, her coming off a Best Actress win the year before that she then goes into supporting. She has moments in the film where she's pretty much a lead, um, you know, the love interest and so forth. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's definitely supporting. And then, um, like I said, Jennifer Jones and Robert Walker, they had a very crumbling relationship, which I've also learned would affect Robert Walker for the rest of his life. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. he died at a very young age. Making, of course, the classic Strangers on a Train in 1952. And then just a review from Bosley Crowther. It feels like we're always saying something about Roger Ebert, but we're in 1944. We go to Bosley Crowther. <laughs> so I just like this. Uh, two hours and 51 minutes is a lot of time to harp upon one well-known theme, lonesomeness and anxiety. And that is all this picture really does. Disagree, but, you know. Power to Bosley, I guess. <laughs> like, sure, it's that long, and that's pretty much the theme, but hey, it's good. It is good, yeah. It could have been shortened. I mean, yeah, it could have been a shorter movie. Don't get me wrong. But it's not one where I was like, it's no out of Africa, where I was oh like, God. thinking I was two hours in when I was only one hour in. I didn't, I didn't get that from this one, so... But yeah, since you went away, anything else on this film? 
It would be a great double feature with the best years of our lives. Mm. Very nice. Watch this and then watch that. During the war, post-war. Bada bing. Which is also, isn't that also three hours long? Like, it's pretty yeah. long, too. <laughs> so set aside time for both, but definitely watch them. Okay. I will introduce our next film. Oh, do you think you're which... going to? There, Brett. It's me, FDR. <laughs> oh, what the hell? You can talk about my favorite movie of all time. My name is Woodrow Wilson, and this is how I talk all the time, except when I'm giving speeches. Are you bored yet? Because I was. Ten minutes into this movie. <laughs> but this is Wilson. The story of Woodrow Wilson. You know, we talk about how, you know, these are all being made during World War II. Here we have a film that takes place during World War I, but does have some of that similar patriotic, uh, you know, up in arms type feel to it. It basically covers um, Wilson's life starting when he was near the end of his um, term as the head of Princeton University. It opens up with a football game, which is like the best scene of the movie. Like best scene in the movies in the first one. Wow. The football game. I was never more excited than I was in that scene. But anyway, if you can tell, I wasn't a huge fan of this one. It goes through, it goes through how he, um, you know, is urged to running for governor of New Jersey. He kind of shoves off the political machine and becomes his own man. Um, and then eventually wins the primary for the Republican Party and is um, not elected president in 1912. I think Woodrow Wilson was a Democrat, actually. What's that? I think Woodrow Wilson was a Democrat, actually. Oh, sorry. 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 Yeah, Democrat. I said a Republican. My bad. Um, But we see him. He goes through World War I. There's all this stuff about how he's keeping us out of the war. His wife dies. He remarries. He gives a lot of speeches in this movie. There's a lot of like, I don't know. There's a lot of just like really throwing in your face of like loading up basically a history book into a movie about Woodrow Wilson, what was going on in this time. Um, kind of reminded me of Vice in that way, although I think Vice is definitely a better <laughs> movie. But the criticism I had of that is that it was trying to throw so much into it, like so much history everything that was happening and i felt like this was doing the same thing like it really wants us to know what's going on but doesn't maintain our interest enough for me to really care personally directed by henry king um alexander knox plays wilson in the film yeah thoughts i'll let i'll let one of you two go into it this is a bad movie this is this i mean i don't know this is supposed to be again a grand epic because it's like two and a half hours long gung-ho patriotism but why should we care about woodrow wilson especially because now thinking about it and doesn't touch on the fact that he allowed like the kkk to be a thing and also screamed the birth of a nation in the white house like they totally bypassed that i understand why they would but in today's mm-hmm. views, Woodrow Wilson had his flaws, and this movie shows none of that. None, none of them. None of um, We'll get into the nominations and wins, but I must say it won five awards. <laughs> so, I mean, somebody at Fox, like, you know, paid some voters. Yeah. Like, was this the runner-up? Like, I'm looking at, this thing won five awards. 
which was the second most after our winner going my way. I, it made me wonder, like, if not going my way, would they have given Wilson best picture? <laughs> like, I don't think it's that far out of the question. Yeah. It's it's just overall, it's an uninteresting biopic that in hindsight, why do we care about Woodrow Wilson? Yeah. KB? Uh. <laughs> There's a reason it was a box office bomb, but to play devil's advocate here, because I have nothing good to say about the movie, um, you have to think once again of the timing. We're in the latest stages of the war. You have a Democrat in office. You have a giant producer at a giant studio of the time. Maybe some of those checks did have a Zanuck uh, signature on it. But at the same time, you want two things you want to promote within uh, the country. You want to promote patriotism and that feel-good attitude, which leads into our next movie. So I'll wait for that. But in this situation, I think the way it was made and the way it was promoted was because it was trying to bring up the patriotism of the time. They could have picked a better movie. If you compare it to the other ones that were out, I think Since You Went Away was more patriotic in that sense because it gave you the feeling of the people, not as, you know, here's this strong president that did so much for us, you know, believe in the party. But I, I think that's the only reason why it would have had any type of success or critical acclaim, neither of which it got, but, you know, Greasy Palms in the Academy got it all these nominations and awards, unfortunately. Yeah. I will say, I, I will give this movie one thing. I did think the production design was really good. Um, maybe not particularly unexpected. Um, this is the only color film that was nominated for Best Picture this year. And the color, it, it's okay. You know, it's used pretty well. Um, there's a lot of red, white, and blue, which is to be expected. But I will give it that. Um, I just found it really interesting that just the picture is trying to paint. It opens with the quote, the story of America and the story of a man. It's like, you're, you're, you're leading us into something really <laughs> triumphant. And sure, they want to paint it that way, but... Woodrow Wilson, he's not a likable guy. He's boring. You know, you could do this with a film about Lincoln. We've seen that. You could do this with JFK, you know, with even with all his problems, he was at least charismatic. Wilson is the most boring dude possibly ever. You could also focus on just one particular thing of Wilson. Yes. Like if this movie was about him just during World War One, it might have been a little bit more interesting. Just like Lincoln is just about passing the 13th Amendment. Right. JFK, I mean, the movies I've seen, like the 13th day is just about, or 13 days is just about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yes. We don't need the whole spiel on Wilson up, like his years when he was at Princeton to the pre-presidency to the presidency to him dying. Like, I don't care. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it is two hours and 34 minutes you feel every bit of it. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> just prepare. You know, if you're a completionist like us, and you're going to sit down and watch this movie. 
you will feel the runtime. Since she went away, I was like, I want more of this family. Yeah. Exactly. Because they're likable. Wilson, I'm like, is he dead yet? (laughs) There was one part where I was watching it and one of my family members came in a room and said, this thing is still on. (laughs) And I was like, yep. And I'm still watching it. So you're welcome. Yeah. Not fun. But like we said, it did have five wins. It did win for color, art direction, color cinematography, film editing. Wow. Film editing. Wow. That's that's (laughs) terrible. So wrong. (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh, Sound and original screenplay. uh, Wow. Um, It was also nominated for Best Picture, obviously. Best Director for Henry King. Actor for Alexander Knox, best uh, the score, and once again special effects. I I don't know, I don't know what's there for that. Um, I think they just had to fill a category somehow. But photographic effects. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, like KB said, it was a big box office bomb for Fox. Interesting note: uh, FDR famously showed this movie to Winston Churchill, and he left halfway through to go to sleep. So. I feel you, Winston. FDR, this movie's a piece of crap. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Daryl Zanuck had a premiere for the film in his home state of Nebraska. And God, this is my favorite fun fact. <laughs> nobody came. Nobody showed up, um, which was a trend for this movie. They went to see Double Indemnity. Yeah, exactly. Anything else? On Wilson. Never again. <laughs> this is actually my second time. Oh, I'm sorry. You brave man. I, I, I'm genuinely sorry. Like, wow. You must, you must all remember, I, like, half of these that we all speak about, this is probably, like, my second time for a lot of them. True. Okay. Are we ready for our Best Picture winner? Well, I don't know, Brett. Are we? Starring Bing Crosby and Barry Gerald in the film Going My Way. You know what? It's it's a film that's intended to be fun, and it's kind of it's by far the most lighthearted of the nominees, which is we can get into why it won. That might be a reason. Uh, but it follows follows far, Father Charles O'Malley or Chuck O'Malley. Um, who is played by Crosby. He is traveling from East St. Louis to New York City. He is a um, up-and-coming priest, new to the profession, and he joins Father Fitzgibbon in St. Dominic's Church, Fitzgibbon played by Barry Fitzgerald. Um, so we get there, and we realize that the church is going undergoing a lot of financial hardships. They're really struggling to remain functioning, um, get people involved and whatnot. And Crosby kind of brings this charisma that kind of draws people in. Um, He kind of builds community. He um, gets together with some of the youth of the area, particularly those who have, um, you know, gang issues, puts them in a together in a boys choir. And while all this is going on, the Bishop has decided that O'Malley will be the one to run this church in the future because it is undergoing all these hardships under father Fitzgibbon. 
So you've got a little bit of a conflict between those two. Fitzgibbon is very old fashioned being Crosby's very new. He likes to go play golf. My goodness. Um, <laughs> uh, he, you know, he's connecting with the people and it's also this conflict of, he doesn't yeah. dress like a priest too. Yeah, exactly. Doesn't dress like a priest. He has other friends who are priests who are also kind of this new age. And of course the conflict is making sure that the church will be able to stay open and running. Um, Christian, how many times have you seen this movie? And what do you think? I think only about three or four times, but I don't, I don't, I don't hate it. I like it. This is kind of like my sort of movie where it's like a lighthearted comedy. It feels very warm just watching it as a best picture winner in 1944. I kind of get it. We don't want to focus on like a hard edge war movie. We want something that's going to uplift us all sort of just like take our worries away for two hours in 2019 it's a very safe choice uh and it's a movie that i don't think would ever win today just in the content matter like a happy singing priest just trying to save the church wow what a masterpiece but again i don't hate it i really like being crosby i really like barry fitzgerald i like the songs in it um it swinging on a star is actually one of the most iconic songs just like in the lexicon of American songs and especially for Bing Crosby next to White Christmas. <laughs> so, but no, it's a good movie. I'm just not like totally in love with it. Me neither. Um, I, I had said before that they probably went to see Double Indemnity, but they probably went to see this since it was the highest grossing picture of the year. Um, it's like you said, it's safe and it's just a, an escape from what was probably going on in everyone's life. So you want that lighthearted musical comedy to make you feel good. And it was enough of a big movie in order for them to have a sequel, like right up afterwards, which is the bells of St. Mary's, which I prefer. I think that's the better film. Um, but and also another one with Ingrid Bergman. But I I don't know. It's it's a good movie. It's light fair. Um, great music. Great musical choices. Not only new songs, but also classic songs. Yeah, Ave Maria and so forth. And, you know, Bing was the biggest star of the day. So you put him in a movie and you're going to have a hit, whether it's a good move, movie or not. Yeah. But in this case, it's good enough. I'll just say that. I will say we've seen a lot of, or I feel like I have Judy Garland, Mickey Rooney movies where Hey Kids was put on a show to save the town. And this sort of feels like it. Except it's yeah. being saying, Hey Kids, let's put on a show to save my church. Yeah. Which is my, I don't know, my problem with this film, I, I liked it too. I think we're all in a pretty consensus. It's a good movie. It's not great. It's probably not, spoiler, probably not what we would pick for best picture. Um, I had a real problem, like the conflicts in this film, they're there and then they're not, you know, it's like we come in and we've got this generational problem between Fitzgibbon and uh, O'Malley and it's resolved so quickly. You know, I was kind of interested in that, like these differences between the two and all of a sudden it's like Fitzgerald gets told that he's going to have to turn over the church to O'Malley and it's kind of like, 
he's sad for Lilith, and he's like, you know what? It's probably for the best. And I'm like, that is not consistent with where how you've been so far in this movie. But while we're on the topic, Barry Fitzgerald, the only person to be nominated for Best Actor and Best Supporting Actor for the same role. Double nomination for this. I don't get that. It's so weird. I don't know. One, I don't know. I, I mean, I get it. Today, we have campaigns that are built so that voters are kind of put into a box of where they put people. But the fact that he even got placed into both is pretty wild to me. And ended up winning one. And so he didn't really, there wasn't much vote splitting for him. Or, did he, he, or did he technically win two? Mm. The world may never know. So my question to both of you is, if you had to choose Barry Fitzgerald, lead or supporting? Supporting. 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 I mean, Crosby's on, on the screen most of the time. There, I don't even think there's a certain scene with uh, Fitzgerald by himself without the lead there as well. Um, yeah, supporting. It's a good point. But yeah, um, yeah, the other conflict being the church, you know, it's kind of present throughout, but it also kind of like goes away for a while and makes a presence again at the end. I don't know, that was my big thing. It's a happy movie, and because of that, the conflicts are kind of pushed to the side. And so... I don't know. The stakes are really low here. Just like, save the church. <laughs> yeah. What's the repercussions? The church is going to close. <laughs> you have to go down the, the street. How that affect me? <laughs> yeah. But I think you're right. Um, this film is definitely different than the other nominees this year. Um, it's the happiest. And I think that's why voters went for it. Pretty simple. I think for me, other than maybe Double Indemnity, it's also one of the easiest of them to rewatch. Yeah. Because like this, it's not a Christmas movie, but I feel like I should watch this during the Christmas season. I don't know. Again, I watch this like, I always watch this in the dark, and I watch it in the dark, and I'm like, would you like to swing on a star? Well, I can see that for two reasons. One, being Crosby is basically Mr. Christmas. And two, this the joy of it is something you typically see out of a Christmas movie. You know, the way it all comes together. Um, but some facts here. I guess I'm not surprised that it won Best Picture. I'm surprised by how many awards it did win. Um, it also won Best Director for Leo McCary, Actor for Bing Crosby, Supporting Actor for Barry Fitzgerald, The Screenplay, Original Story, and Original Song. Um, three additional noms. Again, Fitzgerald with the double nominations black and white cinematography and film editing. Uh, it was adapted into a radio play and a TV series featuring Gene Kelly, which sounds kind of interesting. Yeah. I was like, is that like for real? And I looked it up and yeah, sure enough, that's like a real thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Christian, you mentioned swinging on a star, the central song of the film. It was number one on billboard for nine weeks. It's kind of cool. You had the sequel that KB mentioned bells of St. Mary's. It was presented to the Pope in the Vatican. I don't know what his reaction was, but kind of makes sense. And what I found probably most interesting, Leo McCary was the first person to win three Oscars for producing, directing, and writing, although Paramount was the one who took home the producing Oscar. But yeah. 
going my way, our best picture winner. The big question is, um, is that the right choice? And we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Anything else on going my way? Would you like to swing on a star? <laughs> Watch the sequel. Check out the Yeah, exactly. I've never seen it, but I should. Now, isn't the sequel, because I've only seen it once and I don't remember, isn't that more Christmassy than this? Yeah. Yeah, because I was going to say, I know people who watch it during Christmas time. Yeah. Crosby also got a nomination for that. Ingrid so. Bergman's a nun. <laughs> Makes sense. Okay. So we've got some honorable mentions listed here. I will kind of read them off and we'll just touch on them just very briefly. First one, first on the list is Meet Me in St. Louis with Judy Garland. Oh my God. <laughs> I was watching it before we came on the air, so that's how much I love it. It's like, very good. It's a crime this wasn't nominated for more. Thank first you. pairing of Vincent Minnelli and Judy, and they would fall in love on this and create a little relationship and a little person named Liza. <laughs> I was about to say Little Liza. <laughs> and I don't know. It's a musical because obviously it's a Judy thing. Um, great movie. Beautiful Technicolor. Oh, man. Like, Sweet. beautiful. So like, forget Wilson and that Technicolor. Yeah. This is like stand out. Yeah, I agree. I really love the shot in the movie, just to touch on it, where they're dancing around the Christmas tree and she switches from her grandpa to her lover. That's like, you can kind of see it coming, but it's like so sweet and it just kind of made me smile a little bit. But check out Meet Me in St. Louis. Uh, I will also say that it's it's seen as a Christmas movie, but it's really like a year round movie. Yeah. And it'll also be in theaters this December. So Nice. Let's go see it on the big screen. We also have Lifeboat from Alfred Hitchcock. Christian, you would probably say one of his most underrated. Honestly, one of one of the most underrated. And one of like the best ensemble casts, like mm. ever. We also have Laura, which I just watched today, and it is pretty phenomenal in my opinion. Another kind of noirish film, Gene Tierney. Uh, we had To Have and Have Not with Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. Kind of a remake of Casablanca, honestly. Maybe, maybe not. But <laughs> uh, but it is most famous for bringing. Bacall and Bogart together, they would become one of the big Hollywood couples until his death. Um, so sad. You have Hail the Conquering Hero on here. Yes, um, Preston Sturges, who did Sullivan's Travels. So it's a lighthearted comedy. It's another war movie. And again, like that sort of escapism because it's set in small town America. A guy comes home from war and he's discharged i don't know why but it's for a really funny reason and he doesn't want to disappoint anybody so a bunch of soldiers convince the town that he like is actually a hero and that's why he's back home and everybody wants him to run for mayor and he's like but i'm not a truth i'm i'm not truthful in all this and they're like we don't care <laughs> very nice we have tomorrow the world exclamation point have any of you ever heard of this movie no no Okay, so I saw it last year on CCM, and I just want to point it out. It is about, who is in it? Uh, Frederick March. And he has, like, a nephew from Germany who comes over. 
well, that nephew is a Hitler youth. <laughs> and he's like, why do you all like not like the Nazism? And they're like, because we're an American. Oh and here's why it's bad. And the kid is such an a-hole. The movie, which is really hard to find, next time it's on TCM, I highly recommend anybody watch it because it's like, it's very strange, but it's also kind of good. Not going to lie. Again, yeah. World War II. Yeah. That sounds like a good pairing with Jojo Rabbit. Exactly. That's how it's And again, today. it's World War II on the home front, but through the eyes of a child who's like Nazi. Mm. Wow. You also have the three Caballeros. How do you say that? Caballeros. Caballeros. Sorry. Yeah, okay. I thought so. It was one of the two. Disney movie. It ain't, it ain't a podcast <laughs> till a Christian represents a Disney movie. <laughs> it's part of the package deal that Disney made with like South America saying, here's what's so great about South America. Please don't join the Nazis. <laughs> and out of Saludos Amigos, which came before it, and the Three Caballeros, the Three Caballeros is pretty good. Donald Duck's the main character, and he learns about South America. Mm. Very nice. You have 30 seconds over Tokyo, which I know I've heard of. Yeah. Um, Spencer Tracy is uh, like Colonel Doolittle, and it happens immediately after Pearl Harbor, where the Doolittle raid just goes in and literally bombs Tokyo. Yeah. Mm, and then the soldiers okay, trying right. to get back to where they need to be. Robert Walker's in it. I think he's really good in this as well. We spoke about him in um, Why Am I Making All Right? Yeah, earlier on. <laughs> Ministry of Fear, which I haven't heard of. Really? Is this a documentary? Yeah. No. This is like uh, Ray Meland gets out of a mental institution, and then it's like a 39-step sort of situation. Oh, it's Fritz Lang. Very nice. Yeah. I was about to say, that sounds familiar. Cool. We have Hollywood Canteen. Which was an actual thing as well as a movie. Shout out again. Check out you, you must remember this podcast. <laughs> Hollywood Clinton promoting for them. It was an important thing for the war effort. Betty Davis and John Garfield created this club where the soldiers could come to and just party up with the celebrities of the day in Los Angeles. And this is like a film where they play themselves and then like there's a story to it with it, but I only care about the celebrities. Yeah. One that I put down was Ivan the Terrible Part One, which was a Sergei Eisenstein film that does not feature his typical very choppy editing style. Good. So yeah, no, it's actually a really like well made um the cinematography's very good. I don't I was a little bit bored by it, not gonna lie, but if you want to watch an Eisenstein that isn't going to be like jumping all over the place, this is a good one. So and then, last but not least, Arsenic and Old Lace. This one is a comedy gold in my family because, you know, we're a little demented in that way. <laughs> but um, just some of the hijinks in this movie is just unbelievable. Just love it. Cary Grant, you're so used to him in, like, these dramatic roles to see him just, you know, have that those comedic chops and flexing them. It's Really, really it's good. So nice. fast paced. It's so good. Yeah, which movie, is totally untraditional for that time. It's set in Halloween because it, it literally says during the Halloween season. <laughs> well, Frank Capra, so 
that means I have to get to it, obviously, but haven't seen it. Okay. So now the time has arrived. As we always do, we will present our winners and or nominees um, for some significant categories in 1944. Um, I know we talked a little bit. The only... We're going to jump into the screenplays like we typically do. Um, the only screenplay from the five movies that we had to watch for the nominees was Wilson. And I don't think either of us are dying to give an award to Wilson for anything, um, except maybe, I don't know, production design. So do either of you have an original screenplay that you would give an award to if the option was there? Yeah. Or even nominees. Christian, I know you probably have some nominees. Y'all go first because I have a lot. <laughs> Uh, well, I have, for original screenplay yeah original screenplay my personal pick um, basically the only one I watched would be Ivan the Terrible Part 1 it's well written kind of boring but it's there KB did you have one no not for this one yeah there wasn't much Lifeboat. out there it was mostly adapted Lifeboat, Lifeboat. okay Is that yes your- do research it, it turns, it's like a da- it's like original so very nice. Okay. Adapted screenplay. And so I have some nominees here. Um, KB, do you have a winner for adapted screenplay or nominees? Uh, I would go with Double Indemnity for best screenplay. It's just the banter and the way uh, they're interacted and some of the scenes that we already mentioned, like the grocery store and the um the scenes within the office just it was so well written that yes and it was that little bit of danger so i think that should have been the winner but i understand why they couldn't it it wasn't safe enough yeah yeah i agree um i want to highlight meet me in st louis since you went away gaslight and laura those be my nominees they all had great screenplays but double indemnity far and away it's like in my opinion, one of the great, if you're going to teach a screenwriting class, you should talk about double indemnity in my opinion. So Christian, what about you? Number five, gaslight. Number four, to have and have not. Number three, Laura. Number two, double indemnity. Ooh. And number one, arsenic and old lace. Oh, okay. Okay. Throw a wrench out there. All right. Conflict. Uh, so I have five nominees for supporting actor. I would nominate Joseph Cotton. Barry Fitzgerald gets in. Joseph Cotton what? Oh, sorry. Since you went away. Since you went away. Yeah, Yeah, there was three of them. (laughs) Uh, I have Clifton Webb for Laura at number two. He's really good in that movie. And my number one is Edward G. Robinson, Double Indemnity. Yeah, I agree. He probably had the best performance for that year to me. For that category. Yeah. Uh, number five. It's like, Christian, give us your list. <laughs> I put so much time into all of this. Number five, Robert Walker, who Jennifer Jones's lover in Since She Went Away. Number four, Vincent Price and Laura. Number three, ooh, Edward G. Robinson for Double Indemnity. Whoa, oh Christian. Okay. Number two, Raymond Massey for Arsenic and Old Lace. For Brett, he is the villain of the movie. Okay. And number one, Clifton Webb for Laura. Good pick. I can't argue that. Thanks. He's really good in that movie. Okay. Supporting actress. 
Uh, number five, I would give a nom to Angeline Lansbury in Gaslight. Number four, Shirley Temple, since you went away. I enjoyed her. Number three, Lucille Brimmer, Meet Me in St. Louis. Who is she in that? She is. That's a good question. I put that down. A little girl? Yes. Yeah. Isn't she a little girl? Yeah, she's a little girl. No. I should know this, but I made this list like a while back. Because Margaret O'Brien. No, she's not. She's not. She's the older sister. Okay. Rose. Yeah. Yeah. Margaret O'Brien was a little girl, and she would be my number two. Uh, my number one is Jennifer Jones, and since she went away. Yeah. KB, what about you? I have Angela Lansbury at number three for Gaslight. I have Agnes Moorhead, mm. uh, number two. And then Jennifer Jones, since she went away. And that's only because I didn't see none but The Lonely Heart, mm. which was winner. Same. Christian? Uh, number five, I have Shirley Temple for Since You Went Away. Four, Angela Lansbury for Gaslight. Three, Jennifer Jones for Since You Went Away. Two, wow. Margaret O'Brien for Meet Me in St. Louis. I'm just so controversial. And number one, Tallulah Bankhead for Lifeboat. Mm. Good good choice. All right. Breathless. Christian just said Lifeboat. <laughs> <laughs> it's on my list, but alas, here I am. Okay. Moving on, best leading actor. Number five, I have the winner, Bing Crosby, for Going My Way. Yeah. Number four, I have Dana Andrews for Laura. Number three, Bogey, Humphrey Bogart for To Have and Have Not. Um, basically, Rick Blaine 2.0. Fred McMurray is my number two for Double Indemnity. And number one, I have Charles Boyer oh. for Gaslight. Oh. Upset. Upset. Yeah. KB, what you got? I have Cary Grant at number three for Arsenic and Olaith. I have Charles Boyer for Gaslight. And just because I thought he really did give the performance and was Mr. Popular at the time, I'm going with the Academy and going Bing Crosby and going my way. Ooh, okay. Different. Christian, which way are you going? Number five, Humphrey Bogart to Have and Have Not. Number four, Mr. Bing Crosby for Going My Way. Number three, Cary Grant for Arsenic and Old Lace. Number two, Charles Boyer for Gaslight. And number one, Fred McMurray for Double Indemnity. Okay, all three went different ways there. That works. All right, best leading actress. I would say the most competitive category for me. Number five, I have Jean Tierney for Laura. Number four, I have Judy Garland for Meet Me in St. Louis. Number three, Barbara Stanwyck for Double Indemnity. Number two, I have Claudette Colbert for Since You Went Away. And number one, I go with the Academy, Ingrid Bergman, Gaslight. What can I say? KB? At number five, I have Elizabeth Taylor in National Velvet. Ooh. I wanted to talk about that, but technically it wasn't like a thing until the next year, but I didn't know. Yeah. Um, at number four, I have um, Judy Garland in Meet Me in St. Louis. At number three, I have Barbara Steinwick in Double Indemnity. Claudette Colbert at number two for Since You Went Away. And like the Academy, Ingrid Bergman, Gaslight. 
I have to admit, I thought I was going to be the only one who didn't put Barbara Stanwyck top two. So thanks for a little bit of Christian. I, I think. Yeah, Katie. I, I was just going to say, I think it's more of a character than her performance. Mm. I think, you know, I don't want to say anyone could have stepped into the role and did the same thing, but I think we remember it more for the character than for her performance. Solid point. All right, Christian, what say you? Number five, Lauren Bacall to have <clears throat> to have and have none. Number four, Jean Tierney for Laura. Number three, Miss Stanwyck for Double Indemnity. At number two, Judy, Judy, Judy for Meet Me in St. Louis. I say Louis. Y'all say Louis. I just go with the song. That's and, not how it's said here. And number one, Ingrid Bergman for Gaslight because of that final scene. Yes. Yep. Across the board. Lovely. Very nice. Okay. Best director. Number five, I actually gave a nom to Sergei Eisenstein for Ivan the Terrible. He, it was very well shot. Number four, Vincent Minnelli, Meet Me in St. Louis. <laughs> Number three, I have Otto Preminger for Laura. Number two, I have George Cukor for Gaslight. And number one, Billy Wilder, Double Indemnity. KB? At number three, I have Mr. Hitchcock for Lifeboat. At number two, I have Billy Wilder for Double Indemnity. And I won't say number one. <laughs> Wait, what? I really enjoyed the, the direction of Howard Hawks in To Have or Have Not. Mm. And I know no one else is going to share that. But just from a direction standpoint and from an author standpoint, I thought he did the best job. Okay. That's fair. Christian. Well, number five, Howard Hawks to have in hand. <laughs> uh, number four, Vincent Minnelli, Meet Me in St. Louis. Number three, Otto Preminger for Laura. Number two, Hitchcock for Lifeboat. And my winner, Billy Wilder for Double Indemnity. Okay. So for Best Picture, um, I want to start by first ranking the nominees um, because we haven't gotten there yet. And so just talking about the five we talked about earlier, if you're only given, um, you know, the Academy's choices, what are you going to go with? For me, number five obviously is Wilson. Uh, number four would be going my way. Number three would be Gaslight. Number two would be, uh, since you went away and number one, the real winner, double indemnity. Katie. Yeah, we're uh, very, very similar. I would have Wilson at five going my way at four. Um, since you went away at three and then gaslight at two with double indemnity at the top. And KB, right. KB and I's match. All right. We did. Oh, wow. So, Back to the original question, which picture was best? Did the Academy get it right? right? You know, there's a lot that goes into it, but I would say no. We all three would. Um, double Indemnity. Iconic. Influential. Going my way. Fun. Not a whole lot more. So my question then is, you know, if we want to do a top 10 from the year or however many films you watched, I have eight. Christian, I'm sure you have more. 
we can expand a little bit outside of the nominees. So I'll give what I have here. Number eight, I have Going My Way. Number seven, Ivan the Terrible Part One. Number six, I do have to have and have not. Number five, Gaslight. Number four, Meet Me in St. Louis. Number three, Since You Went Away. Number two, I have Laura. And number one, again, Double Indemnity. KB, did you have any others you wanted to throw into the wrench? Uh, I have five, but they kind of are similar to yours. So at five, I have to have and have not. At four, I have Laura. At three, I have Meet, meet Me in St. Louis. At two, I have Gaslight. And then at one, I have Double Indemnity. Very Seems nice. to be like a trend around here. <laughs> Christian, are you going to uphold that trend? Well, at number 10, I have Hail the Conquering Hero. Number nine, Going My Way. Number eight, to have and have not. Seven, since you went away. Six, gaslight. Five, arsenic and old lace. Four, Laura. Three, lifeboats. At number two. Drum roll, please. And Say that one more time. Say that one more time. Meet me in St. Louis. Okay, okay. And my number one pick, because this was so hard, because I kept going back and forth. <laughs> Is Wilson. <laughs> God damn it. I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. And or double indemnity. And or. <laughs> Let's go with that. Let's go with that. There you have it, folks. If we were voters for the Academy in 1944, which unfortunately we cannot be, double indemnity would be the one taking away best picture. All right. Um, thoughts. Just some closing thoughts. How would you all assess the year 1944 in general, um, either from a best picture standpoint or overall? You know, this is our 10th episode. We covered 10 years so far. For me personally, from what we covered, this is probably on the lower end. Um, you got three really good films nominated for best picture, but it's kind of slogged down by the winner and especially by Wilson. Christian, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, they're not the most exciting nominees. They all kind of feel safe compared to like something like Laura or Me, Me and St. Louis or Lifeboat that could have been nominated. Mm -hmm. I mean, I get, like I said, I get Going My Way's nomination and win. Double Indemnity is at least there. Gaslight's there since you went away. Really, the only one is Wilson. Yeah. But again, it's not the most thrilling. I wasn't like terribly excited for all of these. Yeah. KB, how about you? Yeah, I think it was a year of feel-good movies. Um, but with that in mind, there were so many comedies that did not get uh, any Academy Award nominations. And typically back then, they probably didn't as much. But um, definitely one of the safer years, like you said. And probably not the, you know, the iconic film years, but Looking back, some of the iconic films never got even nominations. So, eh, it was okay. Yeah, good point. I want to say thank you all for listening. Um, we are at the end of season one. So I just want to say for those of you who tune in every time we release a new episode, we really, really appreciate you. Um, we're a small little podcast, but we have a lot of fun with it. Um, I enjoy talking movies with everybody, and this has been really a dream to get to do this. So thank you. Take some time, share it with a friend or two. Um, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen. We're also on Anchor, 
um, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. All three of us also have Letterboxd. We can stay where you can find us on Twitter and whatnot. Um, and be sure to keep an eye out. We will have more episodes coming out soon. We will take a break from this format, uh, but we do have a bonus episode coming up soon that Zay has agreed to do with us, so keep an eye out for that. Christian, if folks want to follow you on Twitter or Letterboxd, where could they find you? You're wanting me to put my social media presence out there in the world? If you want to, if you want to. Okay. <laughs> Most likely you can find me at Letterboxd at ChristianAlec94. And then Twitter, if you must, underscore ChristianAlec underscore. Very nice. KB, thanks for joining us again. Thank you for having me again. Um, I'll just highlight too, um, just say KB on Letterboxd and the new podcast that we just started. Uh, my friend Kate and I just started it's called The Center Seat. Right now you can find it on Spotify and Anchor. So check it out and hopefully we get on some more podcasts soon. Very nice. Thank you all for listening once again. Follow us, subscribe, and we will see you soon to talk about more movies. Have a good one. Yes, it's back again. A wonderful show that scored the Grand Slam in Academy Awards. Going My Way. Academy Award winner for the best picture of its year. Bing Crosby, Academy Award winner for the best performance. Mary Fitzgerald for the supporting performance. Leo McCary for his great original story and inspired direction. Plus awards for the best screenplay and the best original.